any parents that have children ages four to seven, if you wish, you can dismiss them to stepping stones. Today we begin a short sermon series through the book of Malachi, which, as you've already heard, is the last book of the Old Testament. Well, since most of us are not or are not that familiar with the Old Testament and we're even less familiar with the Old Testament prophets, the purpose of today's sermon is to provide some background on the book of Malachi. And to do that, we're going to look at four things. We're going to look at Old Testament history. We're going to look at covenants, prophets, and then covenant blessings and curses. I believe that to jump right into Malachi without this background could lead to some misunderstanding or confusion, because typically what you and I do when we read is we place ourselves and our own culture and situation into what it is that we're reading. So we're going to begin by reading our scripture today, and that's Malachi 1, verse 1. Remain seated and let's read this together. You can go ahead and get that up there on the screen. Let's read together. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. That's probably the shortest Bible reading we've had in a long time. Now, an oracle was one of the ways that a prophet spoke, a prophet of God spoke God's word to people, to the people of Israel. But before we get into the history, I have two key thoughts. First, we need to understand that one of God's purposes in, since creation is to have a relationship with the people he creates. So I'm thankful for what Wayne has already said and Bruce has already said that helps us see that. One of God's purposes is to have a relationship with the people he creates. Another thought that I ask you to remember is that God's grace and mercy is seen in his great patience in the Old Testament. Some people who say, well, you know, I've heard about the Bible, and the God of the Bible is the God of anger. The God of the New Testament, Old Testament is the God of anger. God of the New Testament is God of love. Oh, no. I mean, think about what Bruce was just reading uh, from, was it G. Campbell Morgan? Um, how we see God's love. And that's the second thought. You see God's love, you see his mercy, you see his grace in his great patience. So keep those two words, relationship and patience, in mind as we do this quick walk through Old Testament history, in particular, looking at the history of the people of Israel. So we're going to begin at the beginning with Adam and Eve. God creates them. They're in the Garden of Eden. Everything was perfect. You see the introduction of God's sovereignty and his rule. You see God's power and his greatness in creation, and, as you've already heard, Adam and Eve start off by following God, listening to God, trusting God. But when the serpent comes, Adam, instead of trusting God, accepts the serpent's lie and disobeys God. And as a result, sin and death and destruction enter the world. Everything was corrupted. Then after their sin, God covers Adam and Eve's uh, shame. He provides clothes. And in Genesis 3.15, we have the first promise of rescue, right? In the middle of the consequences they're getting. Well, at least 1,500 years later, we see God's judgment on man's sin and corruption with a worldwide flood, and that's the account of Noah. We read in Genesis 6 that God saw that the intentions of man's heart was only evil continually, and that mankind had filled the world with violence, now, it doesn't mean that people were as bad as they could be. 
It's a statement of saying that everything that people did was tainted with their own selfishness and their rebellious attitude towards God. So God chose Noah and provided a way for people to be rescued from the flood, and that was the ark. Now, as you read, we think it took Noah at least 100 years, maybe more, to build the ark, and he's not silent. He's telling people why he's building this monstrosity in his backyard. Tells them there's going to be judgment, there's going to be the flood, but only no people but Noah and his family get into the ark. Then after the flood is done, you have the first use of the word covenant, where God promises he will never destroy the world with a flood again. After the flood, God reissues the command to Noah and his sons and their wives to have children and fill the earth. And we read, after the flood, Noah plants grapes, he makes wine, and he gets drunk. Well, Noah's descendants rebel against God because they refuse to scatter over the earth. Instead, they say, we're going to stay together, and, we're, and they began to build the Tower of Babel, and we're even told why they did it, to make a name for themselves. Rather than worship God, they were going to try to build up their own name. So God confused their language and dispersed the people. A few generations later, one of those dispersed people is Abraham. God initiates a relationship with Abraham and makes promises to him. One of those promises to both Abraham and Sarah was that he would give them a son. What he didn't tell them was they'd have to wait 25 years to get that son. Abraham obeys God by traveling. He lived in Ur of the Chaldees. He ends up traveling to Canaan. But then if you read the account, you also see Abraham's failures with his wife Sarah twice, with Ishmael. Well, Isaac is the son of the promise to Abraham. After he grows up, Isaac copies some of his father's sins. Isaac has twin boys, and he plays favorites. Isaac and his wife Rebekah are told by God that Jacob, the younger twin, would be, would be the path of the promise. But Isaac, his favorite, is Esau, Jacob's older brother, and he wants Esau to get the blessing. Well, Jacob is a conniver. He and his mother conspire to trick his father and to get the blessing, and the trick works. They get the blessing, but he has to run for his life. Well, Jacob takes his father's favoritism to a whole new level with his wives, and the result is what I call the baby wars. Later, God wrestles with Jacob and changes Jacob's name to Israel. Well, the baby wars result in Jacob having 12 sons, the 12 sons of Jacob. The 10 older sons conspire to sell Joseph, son number 11, and the first son of Jacob's favorite wife. They conspire to sell him into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. Now, all of this sounds like a bad soap opera, doesn't it? Worse than a bad soap opera. The 12 sons become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel and not because of their sterling character, their wonderful character. In Egypt, God uses Joseph to provide for Jacob's growing family during a famine, and the family stays in Egypt and becomes a nation. As God foretold to Abraham a few generations before, the Jews were made slaves by the Egyptians after Joseph had died and had been forgotten. And even though they were made slaves, some of the Jews adopted the Egyptian gods. 
Then God miraculously preserves Moses as a baby in Egypt. He grows up in Pharaoh's palace, but he knows that he's a Jew. He ends up killing an Egyptian who's mistreating a, a Jewish slave, and he flees the country. Moses is a reluctant leader, but God uses Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. God uses Moses to perform miracles, like we call them the Ten Plagues or the Ten Wonders. It's Moses listening to God and raising his staff that parts the Red Sea. But Moses is also a prophet, and God uses Moses to give the nation of Israel his law. But as you read, you also see Moses' failure. He doesn't get to go into the promised land. Well, after freeing the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, God keeps them in the wilderness. We would call it a desert. And he provides for them food and water every day, we guess at least one to two million people with all their animals. God gives them the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. Under God's direction, they build the tabernacle. The people complain and rebel against God ten times. As a result of refusing to go into the promised land when God told them to go, God has the people just wander for 40 years while that first generation that was so rebellious dies and their children grow up. God uses Joshua to lead the army of Israel for five years while they conquer the land of Canaan. And you see the people's obedience in taking the land, but you also see, for example, Achan's sin at Jericho. You see the failure of the people to seek God's direction with the Gibeonites. But after the land has been taken and the 12 tribes are each given a portion of the promised land, we have the time of the judges. The people forget God's deeds and we're told everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There were cycles. There was a pattern that was repeated multiple times. It began with the people disobeying God, mostly just by worshiping other gods. God would bring judgment, usually from a neighboring group of people that come and would make life miserable for them. They would repent and turn back. And then God would raise up a judge, someone who to lead them or, and or to deliver them. And as I said, this cycle gets repeated over and over again. During this time, which is a few hundred years of all this going on, you have the delightful story of Ruth and Boaz. Okay? A picture of obedience and God's blessing. Samuel is the last of the judges, and the people ask Samuel to ask God for a king. And we're even told why they asked for a king. They said, we want a king because we want to be like all the other nations around us. So that brings us to three kings, not the we three kings. Saul, David, and Solomon, the first of the kings. Saul is the first king, but he loses the kingdom because of his disobedience. David is called a man after God's own heart, yet he sins with Bathsheba and has her husband Uriah murdered. Solomon is David's son, and he is both wise and foolish. You wonder, can that happen? The answer is yes. He's wise and foolish at the same time. He is a man of excess. God, back with Moses, when he was giving the law, said, if and when 
you have a human king, because you see, at first God was their king. If and when you have a human king, there's two things I do not want him to do. Collect horses and chariots and collect wives. And Solomon does both. Many of his wives were political marriages. It was a practice of the day, commonly accepted, and it was a way, it was better than a treaty, because it was a way not only to have a stable relationship, but a favorable relationship between the two nations, because the two ruling families are now connected by marriage. Well, Solomon let these many foreign wives lead him away from the worship of God. As a result of Solomon's disobedience, the kingdom was divided. The ten northern tribes became the nation of Israel. The two southern tribes became the nation of Judah. All of the kings of Israel followed the first king's practice. First king was Jeroboam. God even had a prophet come to Jeroboam and tell him, you're going to be king. I'm going to give you these ten tribes. But Jeroboam didn't trust God. And so what he did is he changed the worship of God a little bit by using golden calves, something that was contrary to God's law. Other kings that came later, like Ahab, added to the worship of God, the worship of other gods like Baal and Asherah. And so you see a pattern. It began with changing the worship of God. Then they added to the worship of God, the worship of other things, other gods. And the end result was they replaced the worship of God with the worship of these other gods. Well, God, I mean, this was not all happening with silence from heaven. God sent many prophets to the nation of Israel, but the people didn't listen. And so Israel as a nation was carried away by the Assyrians in 722 B.C., never to return as a nation. Judah, the two tribes in the south, are watching all of this. They see all of Israel's sin. They see God's judgment, and they do everything they did and worse. Again, God sent prophets to Judah, but the people didn't listen. And so the result was that the nation was carried away into exile in Babylon, and they were there for 70 years. I just want to mention three prophets briefly. There was Jeremiah, and most of his work was before the exile began. He was a very unpopular guy. Okay, He never would have made it with a YouTube channel. They would have blocked him. He wouldn't have had any Instagram followers. Okay, He would have been however you bomb on Internet, Okay, because he was that unpopular. Because his message from God was, you have left God. Yes, life seems good right now, doesn't it? But God's, God's using me to tell you that it's going to end. You need to change your ways. And if you don't, God's going to change things. They didn't listen. And so then at a point, he has to change his message to, okay, God has told me it's too late. There's no if anymore about the exile. It is coming. And my message, God's message to you is now cooperate and make it easier on yourselves. They didn't. But one of his final prophecies was after the exile had started, he said, God's told me. It's not going to be an indefinite exile. It's not going to be like 
the, uh, the, your northern tribes of Israel that are still gone after over 150 years. It's going to be 70-year exile. There is a limit. And then you have Ezekiel and Daniel who are in the exile. They're in Babylon and Persia and writing to the people, and God speaks to the people through them. Well, the purpose of the exile <clears throat> was to motivate the people to repent. That was the purpose. But they didn't. They were still worshiping God. They were still, they, this is where they developed the synagogue. Since the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem was destroyed, they came up with this method. Even, for, for example, with Ezekiel, God speaks through Ezekiel and says, oh, the people are saying the right words but their hearts are still very far away. Well, the 70 years come to an end, and a relatively small group, less than 50,000 people, return to Judah. The rest of them stay in Babylon and Persia. And for those that come back, the resettling is hard. The people that returned began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but there, were tr- there was trouble, and there were delays. There were other groups in government that didn't want to see them succeed, and they made bureaucratic hassles that stopped the building of the temple. Well, God sent prophets to both encourage and to rebuke the people. Why did you give up so easy, easily? And after 20 years, the temple was finished. You get a sense of what life was like at the time then in the resettling in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then you have Malachi the last book of the Old Testament, written roughly around 400 B.C. So just to get a sense of timing, I don't know about you, but I I like maps, and I also like to have a sense of when things happen and fit. Abraham lived roughly about 2,000 B.C., and King David lived roughly about 1,000 B.C. Now, here's the reason why I went through the history. In the history of the Old Testament, the evidence, two evidences, Evidence of the sinfulness of man is plain. So is the evidence of God's patience and mercy. They're both there. And people haven't changed, and God hasn't changed. Let's look briefly at covenants. A covenant can be thought of as a kind of an agreement, an arrangement, a contract, or a treaty. Now, I say that because only way that I know, and I see a couple of lawyers and another lawyer over there, only way that I know that covenants are typically used is when you're talking about your homeowners association. Okay? These kind of covenants are very different. But if you notice these words, an arrangement, uh, an agreement, a contract, a treaty, since all of these are between people, a covenant involves relationship. Now, historians have discovered a number of covenants from ancient civilizations. The most common kind of covenant is called a suzerain vassal. Suzerain is a word they use for the greater king, the more powerful king, and vassal is the word they use for the lesser king, the less powerful king. And in these covenants, both sides had obligations. Well, Bible scholars speak of these covenants in the Bible. First one is a covenant with Adam, even though the word is never used in the Bible. But what you see in Genesis is God's relationship 
in God's relationship with Adam, God directs with Adam and Eve and all of us that come after them, human responsibility. God directs Adam and Eve and says, subdue the earth, have children and fill it. Tells Adam, tend the garden, be a gardener, a farmer. And then he tells them, I've given you all the trees in the garden to eat from. There's one I'm telling you, do not eat from. And there's a consequence if you do, and that consequence is death. And so what you see is human responsibility. You also see Adam's disobedience, the corruption of sin, and God's promise of redemption. Then we talked about Noah. We see God's great patience with Noah. If you look at the genealogies, God waited at least 1,500 years between Adam and Noah, probably longer, um, before he pronounced his judgment. And then even in his judgment and what he says afterwards, you have the promise of stability. He says, here's my covenant, no more worldwide flood. Here's the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. And here's what it means. From this point on, season will follow season. Year will follow year. There will, there won't, it won't be interrupted with another worldwide flood. So these first two are called universal covenants because they're between God and all of mankind. But then as we saw, God chooses a relationship with Abraham. And God promised Abraham many descendants, and we realized looking through the New Testament to the Old Testament that that meant both physical descendants like the nation of Israel and spiritual descendants. All Christians are called spiritual descendants of Abraham. Many descendants and a land. And in his covenant with Abraham, God spoke of his relationship. In Genesis 17, God said, I will be God to you and to your descendants. In Genesis 15, when God comes to Abraham and says, we're going to have this covenant, he has Abraham go through a covenant ceremony. And it's a picture of what historians see in other situations with other kings that made covenant uh, covenants and treaties. God told Abraham, take this many animals, kill them, cut them in half, lay them out so that the blood is between them. And I don't know about you, but most of us kind of go, Ugh. unless you like horror movies, you're probably not going to like the picture that that paints. But then what would happen is not only would the kings take and actually write out their covenant, but then the two kings would walk through the animals, through the blood, giving this real picture of, may my blood be on the ground like that if I break this covenant. So this wasn't anything that you stepped into lightly when you had it. But when you read Genesis 15, after Abraham has killed the animals and laid them out and the blood is there, God puts Abraham asleep to the side. And only God goes through the blood. It's a picture of what comes later. Well, then Moses, through Moses, God gave his covenant people rules to govern covenant life. And he doesn't replace anything of Adam's, uh, I'm sorry, of Abraham's covenant. He adds to it. And then with David, God promised a dynasty and a king, and he adds more to the covenant. And then Jesus. The covenant through Jesus is the fulfillment of all the other Old Testament covenants. It's what all the other covenants pointed to. And remember, covenant is all about relationship. 
Well, in human covenants between kings, often the greater king would send a representative to the lesser kingdom, his spokesman. And prophets were God's covenant spokesmen to the nations, not just to Israel, but to other nations as well. And prophets had three functions. One, to remind the people of God's mercy, how God has provided for them, God has been patient with them. Secondly, to remind the people of their responsibilities. This goes back to the covenant with Adam, human responsibility to God. And then thirdly, at times, the prophets would represent the people to God. Now, I went back in in my table of contents in my Bible, and I counted the number of books in the Old Testament that are called either major or minor prophets, and there are 17 of them. They're called major and minor because some are longer and some are shorter, not that some are more important and others are less important. 17 books. But there were many more prophets in the Old Testament than just those who wrote the books. For example, Moses was a prophet, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Elisha and Elijah are prophets in the Old Testament. We don't have any books they wrote. And there were many other prophets that were like that as well. So God had lots of spokesmen speaking to his people over the years, reminding them. Now, I said earlier, a covenant uh, that both sides in a covenant have obligations. Well, if you look in the Bible, you will see this phrase many places in the Bible. I will be your God and you will be my people. You see it first in Exodus chapter 6. You see it in Zechariah, Jeremiah, in Corinthians, in Hebrews, and then Revelation 21. So it's from the beginning all the way to the end and it's other places as well. There. God says you will be my people human responsibility if we're his people, and he says we are. And human responsibility to God means loyalty to God and obedience. Well, this takes us to the fourth part of the introduction. God used covenant blessings and curses to motivate the people of Israel to obey God. Covenant blessings and curses. These are found in Deuteronomy 28. And the blessings, you can kind of Think of them in two major groups. There was a group that scholars say a blessing in nature. So this is, God says, I'm going to bless you with lots of children and your farms and your vineyards, all of your work. You're going to, I'm going to make you prosperous. And then the other side, they call it a blessing in warfare, but it has more to do with their relationship with other nations. And you get a sense of that from Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And and there were times like with King David where you see this happen. You know, in terms of number of people and and, uh, size of their country, Israel wasn't all that big. Yet with David, God gave them supremacy. A typical thing in in that day was, oh, it's spring, it's time to go to war. And that was just kind of something they did against your neighboring country. Grab whatever land you can, grab a few slaves if you can, you know, empty the local bank, get some money. And God gave David and Israel victory over that. They didn't get taken like that. So that's positive motivation. 
in, in both your work and in your farms and vineyards and everything else and in your relationship with other nations. But then God also used negative motivation in the form of curses. And they're also found in Deuteronomy 28. Now the blessings are in the first 14 verses. Curses are in verses 15 to 68. You might wonder, oh my goodness, that's really lopsided. Shouldn't it be even? Well, I'll explain in a second why they don't. But let's look at an example of the curses in Deuteronomy 28, 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and, look at the word, overtake you. Now, what? why did he have so many verses for the uh, curses? Because there's a pattern in them. God says, look, if you're not going to listen, if you won't obey, even though I'm reminding you through the prophets and through the priests, then I'm going to bring you these negative consequences. And there again, with your work, your farms, your vineyards, and your relationship with other nations. And if you don't respond to that, if you just kind of you know, shrug it off, I'm still going to do what I want to do. Then God says, I'm going to bring some greater, a little more stronger consequences. And if you ignore that, I'm going to bring some more, and some more, and some more. And the ultimate, the ultimate curse was exile. God says, if you've ignored all of these other things that I have done, and God did them over a number of years, maybe even decades, ultimate curse was exile. I'll take you from the land. But even here, there was a possibility of return. And that's what we saw in the Old Testament history. The, the nation of Judah, after the country was divided, the, the, the nation of Judah watched their sister country turn away from God. They heard the prophets, they saw the judgments, and they saw them finally removed. They followed suit. They went into exile, and then God brought them back. They were, out, they were allowed to return to the land. But we see something in Daniel. Even though the people were going to be allowed to return, when the 70 years came up, Daniel is an old man, but he's still there. And he realizes they haven't repented. And he's praying to God. And he's repenting of his own sin and of his people's. And God tells him, even though they get to go back to the land, God's going to kind of extend the exile spiritually. Because you see, God had talked in the prophets earlier about a restoration. And we know from this side of the New Testament that restoration was Jesus. But God tells Daniel, because they haven't repented yet, I'm extending it. It's going to be a few more hundred years before Jesus comes because they didn't repent. They didn't turn back to God. So, here's today's takeaway. We've seen through the history, through the prophets, the covenants, and the covenant blessings and curses, God pursuing a relationship with his people. We see the people's sinfulness, and we see God's great patience. Both with them and with us. How is it that God can have a relationship with us, that he can forgive us and remember our sin no more? Remember what Bruce was saying in his prayer of confession. 
All of us turn away from God every day, at least in attitude, at least in our own thinking and our plans. We, we are, as Augustine said, we disorder our loves. Our love for God is supposed to be first at the top. But we choose a person or a thing, and we stick that on top and knock God down a couple of notches. How can he forgive us? How can he have a relationship with us? Jesus. In Jeremiah 31, 31, God said this through his prophet Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That new covenant was the covenant that Jesus completed through his life, death, and resurrection. And that new covenant is what we celebrate with the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great patience and for your love. And we thank you for this reminder. We're just like the people of Israel, needing to be reminded of how you love us and how easily we turn away and how you pursue us. So we thank you for this. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.